This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. being the ultimate form of creativity. We are the art, forever creating and coloring and changing the being of our canvas as we learn and grow. And the choices we make in our lives are the external expressions of that art. What we create and produce and share and try to bring to light is a reflection of our inner being. Basically, the nature of the creative process where you can only see a few feet before you and have to trust that if you just start somewhere, the path will begin to unfold. It's unfolding with small endeavors and big dreams. Each creative endeavor a step towards creating a new path in life. The visions we are given for our lives are there for a purpose, no matter how much of a stretch they seem. These visions come from our higher selves, from spirit, from the universe, from soul callings, from the powers and entities of love which guide and direct our days. And we are given them so we can do the one thing nobody else can do, actualize our own dreams. Give birth to the vision. See it through. In this episode... Valeria Tellis interviews Beth Ann Kapansky Wright. Beth Ann is a speaker, author, psychologist, and intuitive healer. She blends the worlds of psychology and spirit to offer dynamic teaching on healing and transforming our relationship with ourselves. She is the author of the award winning grief book, Lamentations of the Sea, and its sequel, Transformations of the Sun as well as several books of poetry and a children's book. An artist, creative, and choreographer, she is continually inspired by nature, color, and movement. Her life underwent profound change when she lost her brother in 2016, which became the catalyst for leaving her longtime home of Alaska and moving to the island of Kauai to live more intuitively, spiritually, and creatively. Here is the interview with Beth Ann Kapansky Wright. In your own words, who is Dr. Beth Ann KW? Mm, that is a beautiful question. 
So Dr. Bethann KW is my reinvention of myself during my second half of life. Um, part of my life journey is that I made this huge shift at midlife and I left this really well-established life in Anchorage, Alaska as a psychologist running a private practice. And I moved to the island of Kauai and there was a lot of things that led to that, but I came over here to really reinvent myself and live more intuitively, creatively, and spiritually. So that was about three years ago. And Dr. Bethann KW is my author name. And it is how I identify now because it's so different than who I was and who I used to be. So Beth, Dr. Beth Ann KW is a seeker who is open to living intuitively and creatively and really allowing the process to unfold and learn who I am in deeper, more authentic mm, ways. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. I have a few general questions for you, as I mentioned before, warm-up questions, before we talk about your book, Transformations of the Sun. And what a beautiful title, beautiful phrase. It's very inspiring. It just by, for some reason, it kind of touches me. Um, what is life, Bethan? Life is a constantly evolving process. <laughs> what a fantastic question. You know, it's so interesting because something I've been reflecting on, um, I'm 42. And as I go through my own life journey and my spiritual journey, I keep seeing how life evolves and it changes us and our relationship to life evolves and changes throughout our timeline. And I think most of us would agree with the statement that how we thought our life was going to look <laughs> often ends up being right so different than how it actually is. And I really see life as a cycle. I see it as a process. I see it as a living thing, a living entity in the sense like, yes, we are alive. The world around us is alive. Mother nature is alive. And this process of being is very much alive. And anything that is alive is has a wild side, an untamed side, and an innate intelligence. So I see it as this force of, of nature, this force of God, this force of energy, and we get to be participants in that. What do you understand today to be the opposite of life? What a great question. Fear and apathy. It's not death. You know, death is just, it's, it's an ending, right? That's beginning something else. Um, it's part of the life circle. So it's not that. But I, I think the opposite of life is fear and apathy is really what comes to mind. Fear in the sense that Fear is so repressive and it keeps us from expanding and from enjoying our lives and following our dreams and allowing ourselves to become a more authentic, fuller expression. And fear can also be an incredibly destructive force. And I feel apathy is sort of an offshoot of that. It's rooted in fear and apathy, that numbing of self, that numbing um, and suppressing of who we are is tangled up in that too. So I see those things as like the polar opposites of truly embracing living things. They have important things to teach us. They're not bad, but to me, that's what represents the opposite of life. You mentioned fear. That makes me think about um, what do you think most of us are afraid of? Isn't that, isn't that the thing when we really stop and think about it? <laughs> 
you know, what are we so afraid of? I feel like so much fear has been conditioned into us throughout just a byproduct of being a human being in this world. I think there is fear of of lack, that there's not enough to go around, that there's not going to be enough resources, enough money, enough space, enough goodness, enough joy, as if somebody else got to it first. And so we don't get any, you know, I, I see fear um, really attached to this sort of old paradigm that is rooted in lack and rooted in this idea that life is a struggle and it's a struggle to survive and it's a struggle to exist. Some of that is what humanity has evolved through. So I understand the origins of where some of that is. But um, And then I think there's a fear of, I want to say, our own light and our own greatness in some ways. It is scary to say, yes, I will shine. I will say yes to my heart. I will say yes to my dreams. Um, because when we start saying yes to those things, these radical changes can happen in our lives. And I think we can sometimes be afraid of change as well. It's the unknown. And our mind really seeks to, it wants to know, it wants to maintain the illusion of control. Because if we think we know how it's going to look, we think we can predict the outcome. But um, like we were just talking about in the prior question, life is this beautiful untamed force. So it's all unknown. (laughs) We're just tricking ourselves if we think we can know it. That is so well said. Mm. Conditioning, and we're afraid of change. We're afraid of life itself, in a way. How is spirituality different from religion? What a great question. I'm really being thoughtful on this one because I want to choose my words carefully. You know, I feel that religion at its best offers um, belief systems, offers pathways to the divine that really can support and nourish and work for people. And it can really give them a vocabulary that allows them to um, express their relationship with God, their relationship with energy, with source. So that to me is religion at its best. And I feel like spirituality at its best does the same thing, except it's a less form path. There's less of a creed, less of a belief system and more uh, finding your own way. And then I would feel that religion at its, I hesitate to say the word worse, we'll say at its darkest, is dogmatic and it's really restrictive and there's not an allowance of a greater truth to come out. And so there's almost this sense of, of missing the boat. And speaking about concepts that are supposed to be related to love and um, sometimes not acting in ways that are loving at all. And spirituality can actually fall in that same category if we become dogmatic about it. So I really see the spiritual path, though, is one that's open. It's the path of the seeker. It's the path of um, being a mystic and wanting to experience it for ourselves and wanting to experience truth for ourselves. And I really see the spiritual path is one where instead of just accepting something that's been prescribed or written down by somebody else, we test it out and we try it out and we have the freedom to say, well, what do I think about this? And how does this fit into my unique worldview and my understanding um, of the divine? There's not a prescription. It's really about a journey. You mentioned two words, LB, that I I have questions for. Love and freedom. What is the meaning of freedom to you? 
There's so many different things that represent freedom. I think, you know, at, at its most basic, just in terms of the human condition, it's having the freedom to, to, to be and to express ourselves and having access to equal access to things, um, you know, just sort of looking at it from a more humanitarian perspective, but looking at it from more um, psychological and individual and emotional freedom. And, the, and those are really the things that, um, that I speak to the most. I really see freedom as feeling empowered to truly express the truth of who we are and trying to shape our lives to align with that truth. It's freeing ourselves from situations, from belief systems, from people that don't serve us, that don't align with who we feel we are, who we feel we are at a soul level. And it's really um, healing that wound with fear so that we're able to be more alive in love. I see freedom and love as very strongly connected. Yeah, in a sense, love gives us freedom. Um, yeah, true. Uh, speaking of love, what is love to you? Love is like life, because I believe life is created by love. Love is an untamed force that is undefinable. Um, you know, I really, um, it's interesting. I, I recently gave a talk in Anchorage, Alaska on the heart and on the topic of love. So this is very fresh in my mind. And one of the things that we talked about is the idea that love is not a process um, that can be understood by the rational mind because love isn't linear. It's a non-linear process and love is an intuitive process and it's a cyclical process and it's a process that we keep learning new faces and shades of love throughout our our lifetime and that shifts depending on our understanding of love love wears a million faces and i see the journey of life as a journey of love especially when you look at it through that lens and say how can i find the love in this so i really see love is something that isn't uh, that is undefinable but i I do see it as a force that is wild and it is wise and it's highly intuitive and intelligent. And I believe that it seeks to keep revealing itself to us in new forms. What are some of the uh, manifestations of love that you see today? Uh, it could be anywhere. Can you please give me some examples of that? Yeah, absolutely. I think speaking to my own um, my own personal journey, and I think a lot of people would resonate with this self-love, I feel is a huge manifestation of love right now, where more and more people are really thinking about the idea of what does it mean to love myself? And we're really working with the concept that in order to really um, embrace the world from a more compassionate, loving way, we have to embrace ourselves from a more compassionate, loving way. So I see that as an expression of love. I also see love as something that um, in romantic relationships and partnerships, I feel like that's something that's evolving and shifting. And we are seeing a lot of um, realignment and new understanding Understanding, as some people are saying, hey, the traditional structure of how things used to be isn't working for me. And I, I am seeking a partnership, but I want it to look different than maybe what I was raised with or what I was taught. So I feel that is a manifestation right now. And I really see a bigger um, manifestation of what I would call humanitarian consciousness waking up on the planet at this point in time where people are realizing in greater ways we are all connected. What we do matters. 
and they're wanting to make an impact um, on the planet, to love the planet, to love the earth, to love each other. Um, I feel like we're seeing more of that happen on maybe more of a socio-political, environmental, and economic level. Wow, that's interesting that you mentioned self-love is one of the ways, yeah, uh, 100% true. I believe that too. What do you think is the world's greatest need at this time? To shift out of the fear. There's I, there's just so many ways that we can answer that question, right? Because you can break it down and there's, there's so many different needs on a very practical level. But so much of what I see that has created the struggle and the violence and the strife. It's again, it's going back to the opposite of life. It's fear. It's it's this fear-based ideology of difference and not being having enough space for everybody and scarcity and lack and all of those things. And sometimes there's sort of this mentality of I'm going to hang on to the wheel as long as I can because it's my turn at the wheel. <laughs> and I really see fear. When we heal that on an individual level and heal that inside of ourselves, then we are interacting with the world in a more whole way, a more loving way, a more compassionate way. And what a difference that would be if more and more people did that because we would be taking that energy out into the world. And that right there becomes a game changer. That's the paradigm shift where we make different choices from a more healed place that are more in alignment with, I'd say, the the, the greater good, more in alignment with humanity. So interesting that you answered that, that question this way. Most people ask, they say, Love, compassion. You went to uh, to the subject of fear again, just kind of embracing life and uh, our fears in order to change and heal, right? Absolutely. I think that's the psychologist in me coming out. <laughs> you know, ultimately, as even as I've evolved, um, I, I have always had that in me and that's part of my roots and how I understand life. And so I think part of how I look at life is where's the wound and how do we heal that wound in order to um, try and get the results that we want. So that's, I think, why I went right to fear. Love is the result. <laughs> But fear is the wound that has to heal. So true. Do you ever use the word God? I do. You know, it's interesting. I've had to work out my own relationship with that word, and it's definitely had an evolution in my life. My understanding of God when I was younger and in a more traditional religious structure, that's really shifted um, to where I am now. And for a while, I couldn't use it at all. It just had too many layers of um, history and um, hard feelings for, for me that I really didn't have an understanding of that, and it felt too male. And in recent years, I've shifted to including that in my language. I tend to use spirit, universe, energy, love, life, God, pretty interchangeably, but it's nice to be able to embrace it again and to redefine it in a more expansive, bigger way. Do you think that life has a grand purpose? Oh, what is the purpose of life? I do think that life has a grand purpose. I think that 
a lot of it has to do with our souls growing and learning new ways of being through coming into this life and having an opportunity to be a human. Um, you know, the idea that we're spiritual beings on a human journey, I very much would agree with that and subscribe to that. And so I see part of the spiritual journey is coming in as a human and learning these lessons that help us evolve and help evolve our understanding of of love and our understanding of spirit. So I think it's a really unique journey. And I think that my understanding is that each of us really does have our own individual purpose. So why I'm here is different than why you're here is different than why somebody else is here. Um, you know, I think each of us come here for our own reasons, our own soul path and our own soul plan. So ultimately, the bigger reason is for all of us to grow. But I think we do have unique, um, unique things that we came here to work on and accomplish during our lifetime. Uh, you use the word spirit and soul. Are they the same? Yes and no. I think soul, our soul is really um, always inherently intact, inherently whole. And um, our soul is in spirit. I believe our soul, I would say, like exists in the spirit world and it's in communication with us in the etheric. Um, and it's in communication with us throughout our lifetime. But I see spirit as a bigger thing. I see spirit as um, all the, the unseen world, the invisible energies that we can feel, those um, beings and guidance that might come through across the veil that... Um, supports us on our path. And so I see spirit as um, something kind of bigger than that. I, you know, spirit's the divine mysteries and soul, I believe is more unique and individual to each of us. Before I begin asking you questions about your book, Transformations of the Sun, I guess I have to ask you this question. How is transformation, a transformation different from change? Are they the same to transform, to change the same? No, I don't think so. I think that there's potential for transformation and change, but true transformation is when we go through change in our lives and we use the ingredients of change to um, kind of like alchemy, this sort of divine alchemy, and we use them to grow. We use them to become a bigger person. So somebody could go through change in their life and really resist the process and sort of drag their feet and kick and scream and say, I will not, you know, I'm not growing. I want to stay where I'm at. And I think they're going to continue to have change and opportunities to grow show up in their life if that's their choice. But to me, transformation is a more active process where we are really aware that we are being changed and we allow ourselves, we open ourselves up to that process of um, being rearranged and going through metamorphosis. Yeah, I'm wondering what it takes to be open um, for transformations. Do you have some ideas what makes us to open the heart and the mind and, and let it transform? I think part of what helps us open is where our belief system lies. There is, I think, part of what we have to accept 
just engaging in life, <laughs> if we want to, if we want to embrace it, is that life is a process. It is something that's continually evolving, and we're on a planet that's filled with creative change. We're part of that ecosystem, so we are here for growth and change and evolution. And I feel like when we can embrace that, and some of that's just a mindset shift um, of not looking at life in such a linear way, but really starting to embrace it as a cycle, something that's process oriented. I believe that when we do that, that starts to open our mind and it opens our hearts and we're able to step into, wow, I might not like this, but this is happening. And so I'm going to try and embrace it. And I feel like when we resist that and say, no, this is not how it's supposed to look. This is how I wanted it to be. That's when people like really sort of hang on into their knuckles bleed (laughs) and their their mind and their heart is really, um, really close to allowing for the transformation process. And I see a lot of fear in that, right? Resistance and fear of change. We're back to fear again. So I think the answer antidote to fear is really is really love and it is um really working with the energy of our heart to say i might not like what's going on but i i want to keep my heart open to the process i just think all it takes is a willingness we don't have to know exactly how we don't have to have like here's the 10-step plan for how i'm going to be open to my transformation i think we just have to say i'm i'm willing to to allow for my transformation process or for my change process and um show up for ourselves in that space. I love that. And that's so true. I'm wondering if being open, open hearted is the same or similar to being vulnerable. Mm, That's a great parallel. I think so. Because to be open hearted is to be vulnerable, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, you know, to be open hearted is to really be present to um, all sides of ourselves. I think that's what it really means to love ourselves and to keep our hearts open to ourselves. It's not just that we keep our hearts open when life is good or we feel joyful or we like what we're doing. We keep our hearts open when we're in a dark place. We, We stay open to ourselves, to our own process when we're sad or fearful or angry, or maybe we really blew it and we made a bad decision, you know, and staying open to ourselves in that and just being a really imperfect human being, that's vulnerability. It's acknowledging that. So absolutely. Wow. Yeah. I heard something interesting from somebody today. I think he said, I am perfectly imperfect. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting phrase. And that kind of, what you said reminded me of that. What inspired you to write the book Transformations of the Sun, as well as your other book, Lamentations of the Sea? Well, what inspired me is that in January of 2016, I lost my brother Brent. And um, and it was it was very sudden. He had a blood clot that um broke off and so he instantly passed away. And that really rerouted my life. I found myself um going through this journey of grief that I never saw coming. Uh, you know, I think I expected that one of my parents would go before my brother. It was just the four of us in our family constellation. And Brent and I were Irish twins. We were only a year apart. And all of a sudden he wasn't there. And 
you know, talk about resistance, right? And like, how do you, how do you accept something like that? There was part of me that's like, this is not my life and, and this isn't happening. And I'm a writer. And so as I was going through my grief, I used my words to heal, to understand myself, to, um, I, I feel like writing and words can be very, we're literally writing our own story when we write narrative pieces about ourselves. So I wrote to understand my grief. I wrote to process it. I wrote, to write the ending that I wanted. And by ending, I mean, is that I'd been on this heart-based journey long enough to know I have to keep my heart open to this and I have to keep my heart open to myself. And I have to keep my heart open to all these horrible things I'm feeling. Um, and, you know, it, it was it was really bad. And so I wrote throughout all of that. And part of what I did with my writing is I decided to assemble it into a book. And so that is when I wrote uh, Lamentations. And that's really based on the first nine months after losing Brent, like everything in that first book is about my grief journey, which is really just a love journey. That's how I see it. I realized when I moved to Kauai, because I wrote that back in Alaska, that was 2016, and losing Brent is part of what inspired this reinvention at midlife. That first question you asked me, who is Dr. Beth Ann KW, this is the the bigger story, the behind the scenes. Um, it really helped me see you're not being who you feel, who you truly feel called to be in this world. And I realized I'd really outgrow in this older version of self. He was running the private practice as a psychologist and had been in Alaska for the bulk of my adult life. So I had this dream in my heart to move to Kauai and I followed that. I followed this idea of a soul calling over here. And when I got to the island, I started to realize I wasn't done writing the story. There was more to tell. So I really thought it was just going to be two books. It's actually a trilogy that I've wrote. Transformations is the second book. And um, I wanted to write about this reinvention process and this transformation process. And one of the things that I love most about Transformations of the Sun is that I didn't often when we write books, we write it after we've arrived at something like we had the success or we had the big goal or we've been through the big change. And so we write a memoir to reflect. And I wrote it in process. I didn't write it from I'm at the top of the mountain and I've successfully reinvented myself and I've sort of actualized and had success at the dreams that I came over here to do. I, I wrote I wrote it about going up the mountain, you know, when sometimes the view's really bad and you're lost in the woods and it's muddy and you don't even know if the journey's worth it. So um, it, it really speaks to that first year on the island and the spiritual transformation that I started to go through over here. Wow. Uh, yeah. So you were writing about the journey. That was the focus, not really the goal, uh, destination, because most people, you're right, we focus on the destination where we want to be, but you were just living moment by moment. And yeah. Yeah. And writing about it as I went and, you know, going back to that word vulnerability, being really vulnerable about what it's like to be in the moment. And here's what's really going on behind the scenes, you know, and just being um, really transparent about that, because I feel like so often when we're on our journey and we're on the spiritual path, we, um, 
look at people that we think have arrived or who we think know what they're talking about or that we aspire to be like. And how powerful is it when us who are feeling called to teach this and to create dialogues around it are transparent and say, it can be really hard. And every single human being goes through this. You can't shortcut or bypass the human journey, no matter how spiritual you are. Mm, wow. Um, I'm also wondering how emotionally challenging was it to write these books? Lamentations was hard. Transformations was easier. Lamentations, um, I really felt like I had to put what I call my like emotional hit waiters on. Like if I was a fisherman and I was going to go out and stand like waist deep in the ocean, like I had to put like that kind of emotional hip waiters on to, to do lamentations because it was so vulnerable. And because after I'd wrote it, I had to go back and edit it and re-edit it and reread it and relive all of those moments. When I got to transformations, parts of that were hard, but it is a, a lighter book in a different way because it's not in the immediacy after my grief. And there are some really, um, lighter and more joyful moments of what it was like to first get to the island and feel like this blank slate and be like, oh my gosh, I get to become this brand new person over here and I get to find myself. And there was a lot of joy in that as well. So um, it's a ball of rainbow yarn to write both of these stories with all shades of feelings and tones tangled up throughout the passages in the work. Wow, Bethan, I'm just, um, I would like to ask you this question, perhaps for those who will, won't have a chance to read your book, and I hope they will um, get to read it, but how do we learn to see the, uh, the new possibility, the new life after losing someone we love uh, and not being stuck? I have met a lot of people who are still um, in that place of, of deep sadness still five, 10 years after. So how do we learn to see and live a new life after that? I think we all have our process and our timing for working through grief. And there is an acceptance piece. I know part of how I made peace with my grief is I just made peace with the fact that some part of me was always going to feel like this is unacceptable. <laughs> Um, you know, some of it was just embracing that some part of me uh, will always feel sad. Some part of me might always feel like my, I think I was 38 at the time, my 38-year-old self who was just kind of stuck in January, you know, and when I found out the news and I said, this isn't my life. And when I was able to make space for that and embrace that and sort of just bring that part of myself into me, it also helped me to say, well, where are you now, though? You're not January 2016 Beth Ann anymore. You are moving forward in your life. And one of the gifts that I feel Brent left me is I thought a lot about what would he have done with his life if he'd had more time. And I feel like grief can be really clarifying and the hidden light in it. Um, there's many hidden lights, but one of the hidden lights is that it can help us learn to live bolder to live bigger, to live braver. You know, the more I realized that Brent was no longer like here on the material plane, the more I thought about, and I am here, this is such a precious gift. And we don't know how long we might have that gift. 
And what am I going to do with the time that is gifted to me? I feel like that if we can bring that perspective in, it helps. I don't want to say shift the sadness. It just adds a different alchemical component to the process that allows us to start to think about what might be possible for me. And that's interesting because you uh, you didn't talk about time. Like uh, you say, everybody has uh, their own time to heal and to understand and to grow out of grief. It's very interesting the way you say, it's just uh, it depends on the person and the process. And I really believe that. I think that we feel what we feel and we each heal in our own way and in our own time. So, you know, I would never tell somebody you're stuck and you shouldn't be so sad. It was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. But, you know, I might invite them to think about their own possibility and what they want to do with the time that they have here, because that's a healing component. You know, we don't have to know how to heal ourselves, but if we can open our hearts to ourselves, that starts to facilitate healing inside. I love the uh, the quote that you have in, in your book um, that your father said, every day is a good day, just some are better than others. <laughs> That's beautiful. I love that. Um, how do you interpret this like then and now? Isn't that a great quote? My dad always said that growing up and it was, you know, he's... <laughs> and it's one of the things he said that really stuck. You know, then I had, I, I guess prior to all of this, I would have had a more, um, a less dimensional interpretation of that. And I would interpret it as like, always find the good, like try and find the positive. Don't think bad thoughts, you know, focus on what's going good in your life. And I think that's a great interpretation. But now I feel like Part of what shifted in my transformation process is I don't see having a bad day as a bad thing. You know, however we wanted to find a bad day, I see it as I collected another experience of being human. <laughs> and if I get to collect another experience of being human, then, you know, every day is a good day, right? Just some days what we collect feels a little bit more palatable than others. So I, I think what shifted for me is I moved away from this sort of... Um, I guess, dualistic thinking or this pol this polarity thinking of this is good and this is bad and into a more holistic way of thinking of, well, we're just collecting experiences and we're learning about ourselves and learning about life as we go. So ultimately, like that's all a good thing, no matter what we collect. I love that. That's There's so much wisdom in what you just said. So much wisdom. How do you connect gratitude to grief? So something that was interesting, a couple interesting things happened during my grieving process. Going back to what I said about collecting an experience, you know, and really embracing the idea of being human in life, I really, in some ways, was grateful for my grief <laughs> because I was like, if I'm here and I'm feeling these awful things. It means it means I'm here, right? It means I'm alive. It means I have the opportunity to go through them. Um, and I really feel that grief is... I feel like I would offer this to anybody who has really had a lot of pain around their grief. If you're able to feel that pain, it means you have a huge heart because huge hearts are able to feel pain. We feel that pain because we've loved. And ultimately for me, 
I'm so grateful that I have this heart that has the capacity to love so hard and to break and to find ways to heal. You know, that is amazing to me. What a miracle. That's magical that our hearts have that ability. So gratitude is to me is really about seeing it as um, this is just love. (laughs) This is just love. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah, just being grateful uh, to be alive. Grateful to be alive. Yeah. Yep. And I, I will say that I do remember going through my grief journey, having a point in time where I really started to fight for gratitude again, where I really realized that, um, that I had to fight for like finding the good things in day, in the day. And, you know, and I would write them down a flower bloom today, <laughs> a sunny outside. I spent time with my dog. You know, I really do see gratitude, like the, the, the sort of the bigger energy of it is we can talk about how it's connected to love and just being grateful for life. But I do also feel that at some point we have to be really relentless in pursuing it because it's easy to, to lose it. And it's easy to um, forget to be grateful. Mm, so, so true. Yeah. How easy that is. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's not our natural set point. Yeah, right. You said something interesting. I read a phrase in your book that was very, very interesting to me. You said saying goodbye to oneself. What does it mean to you, saying goodbye to oneself? I think... Saying goodbye to oneself, if I'm remembering right, that was in the first chapter and it was as I was leaving my Alaska life and I was really honoring who I was there. I was honoring who I was as a psychologist, all the work I did in private practice, who I created myself to be in that space. And I remember really vividly being intentional about going to places I'd loved and having like a mindful moment to say, thank you for supporting me. You know, thank you for being part of my life here. And I had this awareness that I was really saying goodbye to like that idea of self. You know, we're always with ourselves, so we never truly say goodbye to ourselves. But I knew I was coming over here to go through metamorphosis. And so it was really about saying, you know, good job and you did it and you live life here well and this was who you were and this is what you created and you know just honoring and acknowledging that part and finding closure so I felt like I could more effectively let go of who I was in Alaska to become who I was meant to be in Kauai. So life and whatever we understand to be death is just a transformation, just the opportunity to change, right? Absolutely. And I really think that we have these ideas sometimes attached to who we are (laughs) and to what our life is going to look like and to how things have to be. And um, a lot of that is challenged throughout our lifetime. Because again, if we think we're a certain way and we expect things to look a certain way, and all of it does, there's no growth there. We're here for growth, you know? So it is, it was just like the end of one cycle, knowing that a new one's beginning. Mm, Yeah. Is there such a thing as unhealthy grief, healthy and unhealthy? Let me answer this in two ways. 
So the bigger way is I would say no, in the sense that I really honor every individual's process. And I feel like um, I don't like labeling a process or saying that's not the right way to do it, or that's not good for you, because I think people are where they need to be for a certain reason. And I think they're learning certain soul lessons from where they need to be. So that's my answer, kind of for more of like a bird's eye view and looking at the whole. But, you know, coming at it from more as just a psychologist, um, absolutely, there's more constructive ways to handle grief. And sometimes in grief, people can be really destructive and they can pick up um, whether it's addictive behaviors or wallowing in their grief or uh, kind of hiding themselves away and not allowing themselves to move on. I definitely think that there's ways that don't support the health of the individual and don't support um, helping somebody find a way to work through their grief and embrace life. So I think anytime people stifle, repress, deny, don't deal with it, like any form of that, it means that it doesn't have a chance to heal and it starts to fester. And the more something festers within us, the more we live life and we act from a wounded place. And that never creates the desired results that we really want to see. Yeah, so I like these two different perspectives, right, right. Do you think that we can somehow prepare for a moment um, of loss like this? Is that possible? That's a really interesting question. I feel like life prepared me for Brent, even though I was so unprepared. <laughs> um, you know, when I really started looking at my life journey and I looked at some of the things I'd been through, when I lost Brent, I'd already been through like this spiritual awakening and breaking of self. And I'd been through a divorce. So I'd sort of been through this like whole letting go of an old self and becoming somebody new. And I'd lost this really beloved dog who was really my best friend. And I had a few things on the list that when I got to losing Brent, I almost felt like, wow, those were your, your, your warm up exercises. <laughs> and now like, this is the real deal. And I feel like part of what allowed me to move through my grief journey with that vulnerability and openness is because I'd already been through those other losses. So I think sometimes life prepares us. And I think all we can do to prepare ourselves is, again, going back to what we've been talking about, it's accepting the idea that life is a process and that it's it's unknown. And then I think there's some part of us that can never be prepared and we just have to go through it. We don't really know who we are and what we're made of until we find ourselves in the middle of it. And we think, okay, this is, this is how it looks. You know, a, a lot of life is experiential, experiential and it's hard to prepare for an experience of something. You have to live it. Mm, you have to live it, right. I, I like the way, in the way you're saying that only losing can prepare us for the next loss that we can. Yeah, there's no way to, to know what it feels like. What has your brother Brent taught you during and after his um, existence in a human body? During his existence, um, Brent and I had the capacity to be the best of friends and 
I wouldn't say the worst of enemies. <laughs> I think siblings can be like that, you know? So Brent taught me a lot of grace and a lot of compassion. And um, sometimes we had this amazing relationship and sometimes we really challenged one another and he could be really challenging for me. And I learned a lot about um, different personalities and just forgiveness and making space for people who are different than you, um, you know? And I, he also left me with these incredible memories when we were really connected of these this this great kind of had our own secret language and our own secret understanding of things so that's what he gifted me with in this life and then afterwards part of it is what I already said about really embracing my possibility in new ways and um, another piece was I've just had this ongoing sense of his presence so that's really been a gift to me because I feel like in my own belief system, I'm absolutely confident that life goes on and our loved ones are still with us and they're still watching over us and they're still communicating with us in different forms. And um, that's been a huge part of my spiritual journey. So I'm grateful for that as well. How is faith different from hope and trust? Faith is believing in something when you can't even see the tangible results. <laughs> you know, um, faith is, I think, again, a heart-based process. I don't know that it's so much a mind process. I don't know that we can will ourselves to have faith. I think it's something our heart feels. Um, you know, hope, I see hope as hope can be connected to faith, but hope sometimes can be I think it depends on what we attach our hopes to. Hopes can be part of faith. You know, hope is optimistic. And when we have faith in something, we, I think, have faith, faith, we have hope for something better. But I feel like if we have hope with an attachment to the outcome, like I hope things look this way, then hope is something that can be really disillusioning and it can be <laughs> easily dashed. Um, you know, and I see trust as trust in the process, believing in the process. You know, faith is kind of believing in what we feel but can't see. Um, hope is maybe the belief that something better is coming, even if we can't see it again. And then trust is believing maybe that we are supported or that it's safe to trust. So they're similar energies, but I think slightly different Trust in the process is something that we are in contact with. We know what's happening. We are trusting that that could lead somewhere that we want it to be. And hope, it's almost like this optimistic desire, wish. Uh, yeah, in a way, it's, they, they seem to be very much connected, all these words. Um, I know we talk, I talk a lot about peace and so many people do, and also calm. How is being peaceful different from being calm? When I think about being calm, I think about like calming the nervous system. <laughs> like, you know, like whether you're calming the nervous system because you were stressed out and you say, I need to go for a walk and be calmer, um, you know, or I just think about when life is flowing along and things are calm, right? They're quiet. Um, but when I think about peace, peace feels like more of an active choice. Calm feels like a byproduct. Peace feels like something that we can choose. We can choose to cultivate inner peace. You can find peace when things aren't calm. <laughs> you can find ways to ground and anchor into yourself and anchor into love, even when life is spinning around you. So I see peace more as like this wellness of being, a uh, wellness of being inside. And calm is more the byproduct that comes from that. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, talk to me about empath. You mentioned uh, this in your book. My question is, what transformations in saying no can allow us to experience? You also say saving ourselves. It's something that's important. Uh, talk to me about that. As empaths, and I, I would define empaths in the sense that these are the highly sensitive souls who feel what other people feel. You know, they feel the, 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 the world's pains in their heart and have this amazing ability of compassion and sensitivity. But the challenge in that is that it can be really hard for us to hold our own channel, our own frequency, our own energy, because we're taking everybody else's into us. And no is really the boundary. Um, when we, whether we tell somebody no verbally, or it starts maybe just energetically inside of ourselves where we say, no, I'm no longer willing to carry this for them. That's not my job to do. They need to carry it for themselves. No is really what allows us to sort of separate somebody else's energy outside of us and really tap into, um, really recenter and tap into our own energy. So the challenge when we don't say no, and in my old Alaska life, I didn't say no a lot of the times. That's why I wrote about, I think no is a holy word is, is what I called it, um, was that I was constantly shape-shifting and meeting other people where they were at and really shifting myself to understand their emotional experience. And we can lose ourselves in that. So no helps us to um, re sort of put some boundaries up and contain ourselves a little bit more. It um, sort of protects our sacred ecosystem of being. I don't think protect is the best word, but it keeps it pure, it sanctifies it, and allows us to um, separate our energy out of the mix. And that it is a challenging thing to do. Yeah, you're right, for empath, really, really challenging. Yes. But there's beauty in that too, right? Because I watch people who empaths around me and how beautiful they are. Just they, they can't say no, and, but it's a beautiful thing to see that too. That's interesting how, how life is so beautiful in so many ways. Yeah, it's uh, well, we're, we're interconnected, right? <laughs> so each of us is kind of navigating our relationship with like ourselves versus others and giving and receiving. And like, that's part of the journey of being here is like, that's how we learn and grow is to sort of tangle up with somebody else and learn the lessons from it and ask ourselves, how did that work out for me? And there's no right or wrong to that. It's just part of part of why we're here. Yeah, absolutely. Would you like to say Anything, I'll add anything, but then before I begin asking you my final, final questions. I don't think so. I'm Nothing's coming to mind, so I won't reach for it if it's not there. I feel pretty complete. <laughs> I won't make something up if it's not coming. <laughs> uh -huh. Thank you. Um, how do you define success? What is to be successful, in your opinion? That is something that's changed for me a lot throughout the years. I think to be successful is to stay open to ourselves, to stay in our hearts, to stay open to our journey as humans. And I think being successful is um, learning to live our truth, learning to live whatever's inside of ourselves. That's how I define success these days. How authentic are we being? How much are we really trying to be true to ourselves? And how much are we willing to live open-hearted in this world? And I feel like when we're working on those things, we are being very successful at this human journey. What is to be strong? To be vulnerable, to allow for our vulnerabilities, to allow for flaws and imperfections, and to 
really work on finding the light in life, no matter what our circumstances are. That's what it is to be strong. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself and life? The hardest lesson to learn about myself and life, that I'm not in charge. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All of us in this one. That's probably what I've struggled with the most is just really yielding to what I would say, like my soul, yielding to spirit and sort of surrendering how I thought life was going to look in order to learn to embrace how my life is. Do you love yourself unconditionally? I do the best I can. I think I do a pretty good job at it. And then I'll run into a space where I've judged myself or I've not acted lovingly. And I say, oh, I still got some work to do. I think it's a lifelong process, but I strive to embody that energy. Wonderful. What is another word for healing? Another word for healing. Mending came to mind with the idea of like the physical act of mending is like it's knitting something back up, right? It's restitching it or re-sewing. And so I see healing as when we are mending these broken pieces of ourselves, healing comes when we choose ingredients to like sort of stitch ourselves back up (laughs) um, that that serve us in a way that help us to become um, even more ourselves and even more true to who we are. If you knew you would die soon in the sense of losing the body, would you make any change or do anything differently? You know, I wouldn't. Uh, If you asked me that a few years ago, I would tell you I'm going to move to Kauai. And and I and I and I actually want to follow these passions inside of me, but um, I've 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 done those things. It's at this point in my life, it's it's well with my soul. Yeah, I I love that answer. Yeah, that means you're living your purpose. Um, Do you believe in life after death? Absolutely. What kind of life? I believe in the afterlife very much. I believe that our souls go on and experience things in the afterlife. I believe sometimes we come back here, uh, not in the same form, but that souls can sort of retour if they want. (laughs) Um, And I think that sometimes souls go on um, in the beyond and that there's just like there's a lot to experience in this life. I think there's a lot to experience in that life about learning about the energy of love and light in um, our divine form. What are three things about life you know for sure as of today, as of this moment? Nature is healing. Love is real. And the truth will always seek to come out and free us to become a higher expression. I should say our truth will always seek to come out and free us to become a higher expression. Yeah. Beautiful. It has been a great conversation. Fun, genuine and warm. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bethan. Where can we find more information about you, your books, services, and future projects? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, my website is bethannkw.com and all my stuff's on there. My books are on there. My social links are on there. My offerings are on there. Um, my, my courses are on there. So that's the best place to go. And you can also find me on Facebook under uh, Dr. Bethann KW and I'm on Instagram under dr.bethannkw. So those are the best places to find me. And I do a 
free monthly intuition letter called Intuitive You that comes out on the first Thursday of every month. And I offer guidance for trusting our hearts and living intuitively. And I also do all my author updates in that letter. So um, that's on my website. You can sign up and it's free and I don't spam people. (laughs) (laughs) That's cute. (laughs) So that's a a, a really nice way to stay connected for anybody who resonates with my work and would like to know more. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much again. I'll talk to you soon. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye, Bethan. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Beth Ann Kapansky Wright, please visit her website, bethannkw.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Bye.